Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. Second Kings chapter 3 tonight, if you want to open up your Bibles, we'll pick up there. Um, we'll get to one chapter plus, we'll do the first story of chapter 4, and we'll just kind of add that in tonight because it's just too darn perfect um, when it comes to what we talked about already this morning. The context of chapter Kings, Second Kings chapter 3 is that Ahab is dead, Ahaziah follows in disobedience and dies too. Elijah was taken up, and he is added to the number of people that don't die. I'll make a correction from last week. Enoch also died, but nobody saw him die. In this case, Elijah sees Elijah be taken up uh, in a whirlwind of fire, and he is t- and he's snatched away. So we now have two people that have not experienced death. And this is a big deal because death is the curse of humanity. From Adam and Eve, it's the thing that we experience because of sin, because of separation from God. So you have two people in the history of the world that God has deemed do not need to die in the same way that the rest of us do. That's pretty unique. But it also is a precursor that death is an optional thing from God's perspective. It's not a a doomed thing that we think of it as in the flesh. Um, However, I'll speak for myself. I know I have sinned in the past, so I know I have death coming in my path, and I'm not in that, in that uh, zone unless, of course, the Lord chooses to snatch me up before my time comes. Uh, and there is a promise before the second coming of Christ that those that have committed their hearts to him will be snatched up just like Elijah was. And so I kind of pray for that to happen because I'd love to skip the whole death thing. I, I think that's kind of a bummer. So we'll pick up in 2 Kings chapter 3. Now Jehoram... The son of Ahab became king over Israel at Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned reigned for 12 years. So his brother Ahaziah was the one we studied last week. So now he he, uh, was only there for a short amount of time. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not like his father and mother, for he put away the sacred pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless... He persisted in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. He did not depart from them. The expectation of the northern kingdom is that they depart from the sins of Jehoram. Jeroboam, I mean. So the fact that he's not super evil, he's still actually missing the mark, which is the definition of sin. And so there is this thing where I think when you live in a sinful nation, you compare yourself to the people around you. And you say, well, I'm not as bad as Ahab. I don't, like, worship Baal. Um, But false worship of Yahweh is just as bad as a false worship of Baal. They're both false worship. So he persisted in the sins of Jeroboam, false in every way. Basically, the sin of Jeroboam was they set up their own Judaism. And they did it their own way, and they broke the rules of what it was. The main rules that they broke 
um, where that they set up their own worship center and they were supposed to do it in Jerusalem. They set up their own priesthood and they were supposed to select priests from a limited number of Levites. And they set up their own schedule of feasts and festivals, which were not the schedule that God set up. So they did it their own time, their own way, in their own place with their own people. In other words, they're doing their own will instead of God's will. Um, so that happened. Uh, way back, uh, it said at the, at the beginning of the last chapter that Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. So then we kind of departed and went off to the story of Elijah and Elisha. And now we're back to Moab rebelling again. So verse 4, now Misha, the king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he regularly paid the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. But it happened when Ahab died that the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So it feels like we just went back a chapter. I think what's happening is when the scribes got together in Babylon and they started assembling the book of Kings, the book of Chronicles, they're taking sources from multiple places and putting them together to tell a story about Israel. So these stories about Elijah, the stories about Elisha, seem to almost kind of be plugged in, and they feel like they're almost kind of separate pieces. But we keep going through what's happened. So meanwhile, this is happening with Elijah and Elisha, and, but meanwhile, this is going on with Moab. In other words, the narrative of what God's hand is doing has split from the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom is going this way, but God's doing a different thing at this point. Misha, the king of Moab, is a historical connection. In 1868, they pulled out what's called the Misha stone or the Mesha steel. Uh, that is a rock that has printing on it from the Moabites. It's in France right now. If you go to the Louvre, you can look at the Misha steel. Uh, and this is what's written on the Misha steel. It has the names of Omri. It has the name of King David's people on it. Uh, it mentions Yahweh. It has an unnamed or disrespected king that they didn't regard very highly, which is probably the sons of Ahab. Uh, it has Chemosh as their god, and everything that they did, they did for Chemosh and the glory of Chemosh. It talks about the oppression that Israel had on them and their rebellion against that oppression. Uh, they talk about the Gadites dwelling in their land, and that's also biblical. We know the Gadites settled east of the Jordan. And then it talks about how they took one city of Israelites and they killed 7,000 7, men, women, and young girls. And they dedicated them all to Chemosh and burnt them on an altar for Chemosh. Then it talks about how they enslaved a bunch of Israelites. They were really proud of that. And this is the thing with the Moabites. For them, it was a spiritual battle. They recognized the war of the gods. And when they say they took these Israelites... They called them vessels of Jehovah. Really interesting phrase. The Moabites actually had the theology right. These people that call themselves God's people are vessels of his spirit. And they worded it in a way that's extremely connected or relates really well to the Bible. Uh, what's interesting is when they first found this stone, they broke it into about a thousand pieces and scattered it all over the Middle East. And the French were really dedicated to reassemble this stone. So they sent out kind of Indiana Jones type people to go hunt down each of these pieces. It would make a great movie. But they brought it all together and you've got this ancient relic that cor correlates with the biblical um, record perfectly. Um, only it's coming from the Moabites. So, and it comes with great bragging from King Misha. Um, so you have to read it with that eye when you read it, how great the Moabites were. Um, verse 6, so Jeroboam went out 
of Samaria at that time and mustered all Israel. Notice they're not calling it the northern kingdom at this point. They're not calling it Israel. They just call it straight up Samaria. And this is why when we get to Jesus' time, they hated the Samarians is because the, Samar- the northern kingdom rebelled against God in every way and were actually devastated and taken away. But the city of Samaria remained and its false worship remained. Then he went and sent Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, saying, the king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go up and fight against Moab? And he said, I will go up. I am as you are. My people are your people. My horses are your horses. And then he said, which way shall we go up? And he answered, by way of the wilderness of Edom. So again, the... the Jehoram, like his father, goes to Jehoshaphat and says, hey, let's partner up and go retake some of these cities or resubdue Moab, who since the time of David has been sending this donation back to Israel. The donation was huge, right? Thousands of sheep and thousands of, of, of skins. So that would be food and clothing for Israel. This is their, their lifeblood, is this tither, this offering that they demanded from the Moabites. So Jehoshaphat again teams up with them. Um, maybe the reason that, that Jehoram got rid of this, the statue of Baal is so that he could make this relationship with the southern kingdom. And which kind of tells you Jehoshaphat had a pretty good influence on him, but not, and, and we'll see that from the prophet later in the chapter too. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. So because they're going through Edom, Edom teams up with them. So now we have a three kingdom alliance to go do this. And they marched on the roundabout route seven days, and there was no water for the army nor for the animals that followed them. If you take an army out in the ancient world, you got to bring food with you. You can't just bring a Snickers bar. So the food was walking, talking animals. So for as many soldiers as you had, you had to have this herd of livestock following the army or you wouldn't be able to eat. So if there's no water, it's not just the people that get thirsty. It's also your food source that gets thirsty. And if they die, you die. And it doesn't take very long. And the king of Israel said, Alas, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here that we might inquire of the Lord by him? Interesting that this attack against the Moabites, we have no record that God commanded this to happen. Yet as soon as things get bad, they're going to blame the Lord for this whole thing going this way. Yet the Lord never commanded them to go take the Moabite territory. In fact, he gave them territory west of the Jordan. So the fact that Israel's out trying to conquer territory east of the Jordan is definitely not within God's command. Yet God's pretty merciful in this situation. So Um, and Jehoshaphat reads it pretty quick. And again, Jehoshaphat's a weird character because he's like, you know, isn't there a prophet around here that actually speaks for Yahweh? So before you blame Yahweh for all your problems, how about we actually hear from Yahweh and see what he says? So one of the servants of the king of Israel answered and said, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here who poured water on the hands of Elijah. That's a way to say it's a euphemism for kind of saying he was a servant of Elijah's. And now he's kind of the head of the prophets. What a great title for any godly person to have. He was a servant. He was a guy who served. And honestly, that just stood out to me. He's just, this is the title of the person. Is like, this is a guy who humbly washed the hands of Elijah. He was a dude who washed hands for people. What a great job. 
just happens to be here. We don't know how Elijah shows up at the right time in the right place. He's just kind of where he needs to be. And seemingly, um, he's following the Lord's direction in where he needs to be. Verse 12, and Joseph had said, the word of the Lord is with him. So Elisha's got a reputation. Joseph knows who he is. He knows that he speaks for God. He knows that he sticks to God's word. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Totally different than Ahab. With Ahab, they commanded Elijah to come to him. But in this case, these three kings do the opposite, which tells you that there is a little, like the ministry of Elijah had some impact on the kings because they are act, actually acting differently with some regard. Remember Ahab sent groups of 50 and they got blasted by fire each time he sent them? So this time they go down to him and they show a little bit more regard for the person who's the mouthpiece of God. Then Elisha said to the king of Israel, what have I to do with you? That's not a good way to run into somebody. <laughs> well, why don't, like, what are you here to talk to me? I don't know you. Who are you? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. Why don't you go talk to your other prophets? A lot like how Elijah dealt with the kings. He doesn't, they don't deal with the kings with kid gloves. They're direct, they're truthful, they're honest. They don't worry about airs or position. They just speak straight to people. And I love how that happens. But the king of Israel said to him, No, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. So why has God called us together to die out in the wilderness? Sounds a little like the Israelites when they were wandering the wilderness, right? We got out of Egypt just to die out here. And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not look at you nor see you. Again, not friendly words. When you're standing in rebellion and disregard of God, we have another example of a godly person saying, I'm not interested in what you have to say. I feel like we keep running into these as we go through the scriptures. There is not a desperation on the part of God's people to make buddies with people that hate God. Right? Like, we're here if you want to know more about God, but boy, if you hate God, I, I guess I'm not here to argue with you about it. And in this sense, like, Elisha's really putting a wall up with this king that's like, oh, we just... What do we got to do? How are we going to do it? And it's like, boy, if it, if it wasn't for Jehoshaphat, I wouldn't even be speaking with you. I would have nothing to do with you. You've already walked out the door and sought after other gods. So because we're not on good terms, I'm going to look over that because Jehoshaphat is trying to serve God. And he doesn't do it perfect all the time, but at least he's got a good heart about it. So this reaching out to the ungodly here case by case seems to be spirit led sometimes we have God's people that are called to the ungodly to try to engage with them and bring them into the kingdom but sometimes God's people are there to just draw a line and say you're a sinner and I don't really care what you're doing or what you think and so we have examples of both in the Bible I think that's interested as Christians because I'm always wondering Lord do you want me to engage with this person or don't you want me to engage with this person and, it, and you really need to hear God's voice on that to know when and when not to. Um, but this idea that there's always an obligation doesn't seem to be consistent with the scriptures. It's not always an obligation. What is consistent is we hear God's voice and we follow what he says. And in this case, God is telling Elisha to deal with these three kings despite the fact that they never sought him in the first place. At least two of them didn't. So the language here makes it very clear 
Jehoram now has another opportunity to hear from a person of God saying you're on the wrong path and you're not doing the right thing. That should wake this guy up. It won't, but it should. Verse 15. But now bring me a musician. <laughs> then it happened when the musician played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. This may be one of, I mean, David set up musicians in the temple, but I think that Elijah was so ticked off that he had to cool down a little bit. And he's like, I just need to chill before I deal with you. At the very least, there's an indication here that he's moving from the flesh to the spirit, and music helps him do that. So I think this is powerful, especially those of you that love music in the room. Music is an extremely powerful tool. And for some people, it is one of the ways we get our heart right before God, before we study his word. For some people, it's, it's essential to their walk in the faith. For other people that don't take it seriously, uh, and honestly, I'm not picking on any individuals, but if you're listening to garbage, that has a powerful effect too. And Elijah's showing here, like, for him to get right with God and even to hear from God, he's got to have some, he's got to have that influence of music in his life in order for that to happen. So he asked for a musician. I just think that's a wonderful kind of honest take of this whole situation. Like, let me just listen to some music for a while and I'll get back to you. Um, he doesn't speak rashly in that sense. He takes a pause before he actually deals with these three kings. He's not going to be rushed by their urgency. He's going to speak in due season when God tells him to speak. Yeah, so, And again, that the influence of music. Think about the music that you put into your head because it does have an effect on your spirit and on your, your soul and on your heart. Verse 16. And he said, thus says the Lord, which means he's heard from the Lord. So here's what the Lord says. Make this valley full of ditches. <laughs> I, again, God, God has, maybe has a sense of humor. For thus says the Lord, if you shall not see wind, nor, you sh nor shall you see rain, yet that valley shall be filled with water, so that you, your cattle, and your animals may drink. Remember the fact that there's no wind and there's no rain, because that's going to be important in a little bit. There's no storm. There's no rainstorm that fills the, well, the, the area. So... It shall be filled with water so that you, your cattle, and your animals may drink. And this is a simple matter in the sight of the Lord. He'll also deliver the Moabites into your hand. And also, you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city and shall cut down every good tree and stop up every spring of water and ruin every good piece of land with the stones. This, is, this confuses some people. What he's doing right now is he's prophesying what they're going to do. But it's not that they're commanded to do any of these things. He's just saying, God's going to give you water and answer that need. And then you're going to go off and do all these other things. And so there's just this idea that making the valley full of ditches. In the next chapter, we're going to see God tell the widow to go gather containers. We're going to do that story tonight, too, because I think the two stories go together. Um, but there is a principle here of God asking his people to do some work. Sometimes before you see the wonders of God in your life, you got some work to do. You got to get containers. And you got the containers in the next chapter, and you've got the ditches in this chapter. You've got to prepare things that are ready to receive what the Lord has to offer. And I think in a heart sense, sometimes we don't bother to do the work, but we expect God to do the wonders. And those wonders can go right by us if we haven't done the work of preparing the soul of our hearts so that we're ready to hear the word and ready for it to do something in our life. And in that sense, we lose the blessing. The blessings come to the degree to which we, we are ready to 
put in and do the things that God tells us to do. Jesus told his disciples then the exact same thing in Mark 6. Before he does the feeding of the 5,000, he tells them to go and look and try to figure out what they have that they can offer. And they came up with five loaves and two fishes. And I was told that they were probably salted fishes, not stinky fishes. So go and see what we have. They start handing out the loaves of fish, and they do work, and they gather, and they deliver, and they gather. What he asks them to do is exhausting, like physically exhausting, walking amongst 5,000 people with only 12 dudes. That's a lot of time and a lot of work. Digging ditches when you're going so thirsty you think you're going to die? Like, let's get out in the hot Mediterranean, Middle Eastern sun and start digging ditches after we've been thirsty and appealed to God. Isn't that interesting? I'm thirsty. Lord, I, please provide for us. And the Lord says, start digging. Like, it seems almost cruel, doesn't it? Go to work. This idea of thirsty men digging, right? As soldiers, because they've gathered armies, you've got grown men that are calling themselves soldiers, and the commanders come back out of this little tent. The kings come out and they tell their top commanders, tell the men to start digging ditches. Imagine being one of those soldiers getting that command. Okay, we're supposed to start digging ditches. And by the time it gets to the average foot soldier who actually does the ditch digging, they had to be muttering under their breath the whole time. What are we doing out here? Digging stupid ditches, right? So exhausting. I think practically or strategically, this also turns this plane into an area that chariots can't work very well. Incidental effect of ditches. The faith, promise, the faith that they have to exhibit in digging the ditches may not have been shared by the soldiers. But the faith they show in digging the ditches is required before, in order for them to capture the blessings that God's going to send their way. God's promised it, so get ready for it. Rejecting the instinct to just find shade and rest and actually getting to work is overcoming the self-interest in order to do the service. So this is kind of, again, kind of a keen concept we're seeing in the Old Testament. We saw it in the New Testament this morning. But this idea of getting to work before you see what God's got in mind. They're told what God's going to do, but they have to actually start putting in the work to get it done. So some might see this as an idea of when we work, we do it for some benefit. And there, there's a thought that maybe that's just self-interest. Maybe when we work or we do things for the kingdom, we're just doing it because we really want more stuff. So I think in some ways that's true and false. And I was working on this idea this week, thanks to Sam. Yes, we love ourselves, and that is self-interest. And yes, I want the blessings of God. In fact, I want all the blessings of God that I can gather. And so it's true that that's kind of self-interest, but when I do it to serve myself, I think that's doing it in a way that you still have to have faith that God's going to fill that blessing because of your work. So you're doing the work in the assumption that God's going to follow through on his part. But is it selfish to try to gather as many blessings as we can get? I don't know that it is in this case because God's saying to dig the ditches. The deeper they dig the ditches, the more water they're going to get. The more ditches that they dig, the more water they're going to get. In fact, the only limit to the water that's coming is how many ditches they can dig in a short amount of time. This is like a reality TV challenge. They all get shovels, start digging. Actually, they probably don't all have shovels. What are they digging with? For those of us in the faith, 
we can see the water coming because we've seen it come before. So we work even harder in the kingdom. And I think this is a cool principle. We're not doing it in the sense of self-interest because we've seen how that blessing blesses everybody. So at some point you're digging just because you want to see peace and love and salvation and joy and faith and hope. We love those things because we've seen them before. So we put in the work because we want to see them again. And you'd kind of week in, week out, you start digging ditches. The amount of water is in direct proportion measured out to their willingness to dig on faith. This is, I just can't skip past this idea. God isn't stingy in his blessing. He simply says it has to be reciprocal. There's going to be a matching of blessing to what we put in. It says, also you shall attack. So he gives a prophecy. They're going to keep doing that. And they're going to go after these Moabites and it's going to get messy. But not necessarily because God had commanded them to attack. It's just saying you are going to attack. Verse 20. Now it happened in the morning when the grain offering was offered that suddenly water came by way of Edom and the land filled with water. Geographically, this is a thing that happens here. It takes about three days from where the water stacks up to where it overpours like this. And when it overpours, it just washes through here. It's called a wadi. And they're all over in this part of the world. And the waters, wadis are dug out pretty deep because of how fast the water comes through. So that means, if you look at this part of the world, that the blessing or the buildup of water happened three days prior to them ever coming to God for prayer. God knew they were going to come to him prepare. He was preparing the blessing before they even started digging. I love that idea. God's waiting for them to inquire of him to show the abundance that he has to offer. Verse 21. And when all the Moabites heard all the kings had come up to fight against them, all who were able to bear arms and older were gathered and stood at the border. And then they rose up early in the morning, which is every time we've seen that phrase, it means they're kind of excited. They rose up early in the morning, and the sun was shining on the water, and the Moabites saw water on the other side as red blood. There hasn't been any rain. So when they see that sunlight hit the wet fluid in those ditches, they think it's blood because there's been no rainstorm. So where would water possibly have come from in the middle of this dry season? And they said, this is blood. The kings have surely struck swords and have killed one another. Now, now, therefore, Moab to the spoil. Not Moab to war or Moab to battle. They think they're coming on a battlefield that's already over. They just want the loot. So they're, so they're running down like a mob. They're not coming down like an army. And a disorganized army is a, a vulnerable one. And that's what's going to, they're going to, this is going to be devastating for them. So when they came to the camp of Israel, Israel rose up and attacked the Moabites so that they fled before him and they entered their land killing the Moabites. And then they destroyed the cities. Each man threw a stone on every good piece of land and filled it. So they're stoning the fields there in verse 25. If you want to conquer a people, you don't destroy their fields because you want the taxes off the fields. So when they're stoning the fields, the desire here is to destroy the population. It's really evil. And they shouldn't do that according to the law. Um, they shouldn't be taking out good trees either because trees that bear fruit, by Jewish law, by God's law, they're not supposed to destroy the trees. They're supposed to leave them in place because people need to eat. So stoning the fields, and they stopped up all the springs of water. Again, this is just evil. You're stopping their water supply. Your goal here is to kill them. And they cut down all the good trees, which 
Most people read that as these are the olive trees and the fruit trees that are in the land, which take like decades to raise to proper fruit-bearing season. So they're not, under Jewish law, they're not supposed to do any of these things. But they left the stones of Kurharaseth intact. However, the slingers surrounded it and they attacked it. So tons of images of hard work um, being destroyed by God's people. They stopped up all the springs, purposefully destroying the provisions, cutting down the good trees. Some people try to excuse this, and you'll read commentators that say, your Bibles might even say this, the good trees, they meant the shade-giving trees. So they're just taking away the shade. A, a simple reading of this is, you know, when the stopping up of the springs and the stoning of the fields, this is they're taking out the fruit trees. And just a basic reading of it is there. Um, and part of that is, I think, the desire to make the Israelites do something good when they're not doing something good here. They're actually doing something bad. Verse 26, And when the king of Moab saw that the battle was too fierce for him, he took with him 700 men who drew swords to break through to the king of Edom, but they could not. So one last ditch effort, one kind of wild ride. Um, and then he took his eldest son who would have reigned in his place, and he offered him as a burnt offering on the wall where everybody could see it. And there was a great indignation against Israel. So they departed from him and returned to their own land. So the king of Moab does something pretty sick, right? He gets up on the wall where everybody can see him, both armies, takes his own son and burns him up and offers him to his God. The belief with Chemosh worship is the more important, intelligent, beautiful the person was, the better the gift was. So if you give a prince, you're giving the most powerful thing you can give. And in this case, like, it's actually, I, I think, something where the Israelites see this happen and they're just kind of sickened by it. And they are the attackers here, so when they go home or they decide to depart from him, the battle's kind of over at that point. But if he's willing to kill his own son before he gives up that city, I think the Israelites are like, okay, you can have the city. Like, there's a certain level of desperation there. Um, surely... A worldly king, somebody who doesn't serve God, can't understand, and I think this is part of it, how could any king give up their own son to save their people? And it's an odd image here that you have the Moabite king killing his own son in kind of a, a sacrificial way that it's so wrong and so horrible, yet isn't that exactly what God did with Jesus? Sacrificed his only son? I mean, of course, God resurrected him, too. But at the same token, there's this idea of a king giving his own son to try to save his people. And in this case, it actually does save them. But it's, an, it's a really, you can see the spiritual confusion going on with the northern kingdom right now. Something's goofy when they see that image from a Moabite king. When they get the blessings of God via water so they don't die, but then they go break the law of God in their attacks. So why would God keep helping the northern kingdom when they keep dishonoring his name and letting the king of Moab honor Chemosh right in front of their face? So you get this sense that, again, with Elijah walking out of the country, there was this image of God saying, I'm not going to deal with the kings anymore. I'm just going to deal with the prophets and bless the people. So I do think it's connected when we go to the next chapter that it goes right to individual ministry. It's not dealing with Jero Jeroam as the king anymore. There's this great indignation. There's a madness or even a, de a devotion of evil that they're facing. Meanwhile, Elisha goes on a series of miracles that are going to get recorded next. 
God is not at work nationally beyond getting them some water, but he is at work under the radar. And I think this is great because if you live in a kingdom that's not serving the Lord of God Almighty, God tends to work through individuals and cities and people and groups. So these are the seeds um, that are being planted. God's already preparing the blessing to his people before he moves. Just like he was already getting the water ready to fill the ditches, these individual ditches that individuals dug before they even prayed for it. So these are the seeds of uh, the era of kings coming to an end in the northern kingdom. So you get to the story of the widows, the Elisha and the widow's oil. We're just going to do this first story in chapter 4 tonight. Um, it's in the middle of the narrative of Jeroam, right? So we get, to, we get five chapters on Elisha that just seem to be plugged into the middle of this record of kings. And, I, and again, part of it is God is not working with the northern kings anymore. He is definitely making Elisha the central figure. So it's almost like this five-chapter scroll gets added right here in chapter 4, and it should be like the book of Elisha, right? It would have his own thing on our table of contents, but it's wrapped into 2 Kings, but it's really about the ministry of Elisha because as God leaves working with the kings, he starts working through the prophet. So a spiritual kingdom is getting set up, and that spiritual kingdom is below the radar of the national worldly kingdoms. It's a record of God's chosen people. I think this is why the scribes put this in here. The book of Kings is how God is interacting with humanity. God chose a people way back that were slaves in Egypt, and he brought them out of Egypt. He formed them. He organized them. He made them into tribes. He gave the tribes you know, names. He, he, they started to move in tribes. He told them how to move in the shape of this big cross. He put the tabernacle there. He pointed them at a location and a place. And they didn't know the name of the place, but then they did know the name. It's Jerusalem. And that's where his name's going to reside. So they start to build a temple under Solomon. And it's, a, it's an awesome temple. It's a wonder of the world temple. It's beautiful. And then you get this northern kingdom that just rejects it. And then they split the nation. And Jehoram starts creating his false Judaism and ignores God's way of doing things. And then it just declines from there into Ahab doing every evil he could get his hands on. And then as that happens, God, one of the greatest prophets in history, rises up, Elijah. And then Enoch disappears, and then Elijah's raptured away. I had to get Enoch in there. I'm sorry, I screwed that up last week. But God isn't done. Elijah leaves the country, and then he brings in Elisha. God, the worker leaves, but the work goes on. And our lives are finite. We won't be here forever, but the name of God will endure through all generations, even past our generation. So this idea that God's continuing to work worship through, or show worship and show what proper worship looks like, we start to see these narratives with Elijah and they're images of what's coming. And I think they're images of the church age. This is what the church is going to be. At some point, God's just going to directly deal with each individual. And the Holy Spirit will be put on our hearts and we'll be called as a holy priesthood to serve the Lord God Almighty. Even Gentiles like us are going to get to serve the Lord God Almighty. And we get through the ministry of Elijah these really powerful precursors to Jesus. Just dropped right in the middle of 2 Kings. The Bible then becomes God's recorded love letter to us. I had this plan. It's my plan from the beginning. You guys think you needed kings? So I let you have kings for a while. And we went from David to Ahab in a matter of generations. But then I sent Elijah. 
to minister and show you what it looks like, show you what the Holy Spirit looks like and how it works. So the thematic arrangement of these miracles aren't necessarily in chronological order, but they are in thematic order. They're here to show us something. So the ditches with the kings and the rejection of the kings of God's way, they got this beautiful miracle, and then they went and did evil right after it. And Elijah predicted that was going to happen. So we have the first half of these miracles being to individuals and to families and to households. The second half is how Elijah then interacts with the king, the earthly kingdom that's there. So Elijah becomes the spiritual leader of northern Israel, regardless of whatever king is sitting on that throne for the short time that they're left on the planet, because they don't have long. Verse 1, 2 Kings chapter 4. A certain woman of the wives of the sons of prophets cried out to Elisha, saying, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord, and the creditor is coming to take my two sons to be his slaves. So back in 1 Kings 18, um, there was a reference to a guy named Obadiah. And in the Talmud and in Josephus, they believed that this woman's wife was Obadiah, the guy who hid the prophets of the Lord. How much money would it take to hide those prophets? Like you had to feed them, you had to take care of them and keep them under the radar of the king. So the belief of the Jewish people was that this work that Obadiah was doing bankrupted the household. And then he dies... And now there's this giant debt that she can't pay. In fact, nobody can pay it. So she's got a, a debt she can't pay, and she goes to God for help with that debt that she can't pay. Again, don't miss the imagery here. The point is, she's not just anybody. She's part of the remnant that love the Lord. She's part of the kingdom. And so she's on the team, and that's the reference of, like, your servant, my husband, is dead. He was a man of God. And so the duty of the body of Christ is to take care of the widows and the orphans. And here's a widow saying, I need help. I'm, I'm in tough shape. Um, the idea that the kings of the world are doing this and that, but God's attention is on the poor and the poverty-ridden widow, I think that's beautiful. Because God could be dealing with Jehoram right now and the Jehoshaphat and the, the high and the mighty, but God's actually caring about the low and the meek. And so we get this image of a God who's actually concerned. And again, this is the record of God with humanity. And the record of God with humanity had some other options. At this period in history, the record of the Bible could be about the rise of Assyria. Actually, Rome has just been birthed over in Italy. And the Romans have taken over most of the Italian peninsula at this point. At this point in history, China has risen and unified. But God's book, God's love letter, isn't talking about the rise of the great nations, Rome, Assyria, China. God's love, love letter is talking about this widow who needed some food. And it shows you the heart of God. The heart of God isn't to record the rise of China. The heart of God is to say, this is one way where he spoke to one woman to show her that he loved her. And it's just a beautiful image. Verse 2, so Elijah says to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And she said, your maidservant has nothing in the house but a jar of oil. I got nothing to offer you. She has a debt she can't pay, and she's got nothing of worth that she can offer to the king or to the man of God. I think Elisha knows what she needs. So when the man of God or the voice of God, the prophet of God says, asks to say, what shall I do for you? It's not because he can't see that she's poor and hungry. 
It's that there's something about her heart to actually humble herself to ask for what she wants. I need this, right? We grow spiritually when we pray or when we ask God to help us. Prayer actually changes us. It doesn't change God. So that Jesus does the same thing with the disciples. He says, what do you have? We just did this this morning, Mark 6, 38. How much do you have? So God, the nature of God is to do this. Oh, I need this, God. Well, what do you have? What do you have that you can put on the table here? And so there's something about how God works that I think is really interesting here. To say she has nothing, but then she says, but a jar of oil. Her, in her head, and I think this is tough to see before God's brought his blessing, in my head I got absolutely nothing. But what a great place to be. The jar of oil here, to say, to say she has nothing is more an indication of that she feels like she has nothing. But we know she has a house. We know she has two sons. We're going to see that later. Sons that should be providing for her, by the way. Um, but they're not. We know that she has another blessing. And we're going to see this later in the story. So let's not, I don't want to pass the I have nothing statement. The other blessing that she has is empty vessels. And the blessing, not just in her household, but all around her, all her neighbors, they all have empty vessels. There's been a hardship in the land. All these empty vessels all over the place are actually a blessing that God's going to use. But she doesn't even see them as worth anything, right? They're unfilled vessels. So she forgets that what is empty also has value too. Lord, I'm coming to you and I got nothing. I'm, I'm exhausted. I'm tired. I'm not smart enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not well-spoken enough. Lord, I got nothing for you but an empty vessel. Amen. Good start. But a jar of oil. The word jar there is the only place you see it in the entire Bible. And the Bible has words for other vessels. In fact, the rest of the chapter uses the word vessel. So they've got that Hebrew word. This particular Hebrew word means a flask, or the way they, they think that it means this, like a little ointment bottle, like beard oil amount. So she's like, I got absolutely nothing, but I've got this flask of oil. And in that small of a container, it was likely a spiced olive oil, which is what they used for anointing. So in the temple, they would use this spiced oil. They got the recipe back in Exodus 25. They're told to use it in Exodus 30. It's an oil that's for the work of God's kingdom according to his prescribed order. And oil, olive oil, typically will come in other vessels. It doesn't come in this jar word. Every other reference to olive oil, it comes in a hen or it comes in a vat are the words that the Bible uses. Both of those are big containers, right? Like you go to the shopping, you go to Costco and you get the hen of oil. You know, you go to Sam's Club and you get the vat of oil. They're bigger containers. This little flask thing is more like a little teeny worship bottle. It was anointment oil for religious use. This is a tradition in the Jewish tradition. We see it when God sends out the disciples two by two. It says they healed people and they, and they anointed them with oil. They would have had a little flask with them that they used for this. So when they prayed for people, they would apply oil to them as part of their praying. So not necessarily for eating, it is and continues to be and will continue to be an image of the Holy Spirit. The idea of oil is that the Holy Spirit is shed upon you. They use it for uh, consecrating temples and they use it for um, ordaining their priests and they use it for sending out missionaries. So those are the three uses religiously for this kind of an oil. The usage here implies that she's got that. 
So she's got nothing of this world, but she does have something for religious use, and that is an oil that's the Holy Spirit to anoint other people. And she doesn't have much of it. Honestly, when you're hungry and you're tired and you've been serving the kingdom for years, hiding the priests um, of God away from an evil king like Ahab, sometimes you're just exhausted. So she comes to that prophet and says, I got nothing left. We've given everything. All I got left is this little bit of the spirit, this little bit of oil. So the narrative here gives us a power, powerful image of how when somebody's empty, they can get refilled. The Spirit causes us to set things aside for God. And this use of the oil is for consecration. Exodus 29, take the anointing oil, pour it upon his head, and anoint him. Exodus 40, you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that's therein, and you shall hallow it and all the vessels thereof, the word vessels again, and it shall be holy. The point of the oil was to say this is God's and we're going to give it to God, and we're going to consecrate it for God's use. So I got nothing that God can use, but I do have a spirit still. I still breathe. So I have breath in my lungs, and the story becomes an idea of how that little bit of spirit can be birthed into something that God does an amazing thing with. Small amount getting turned into something that's precious. Here's that theme again. God takes small, worthless things, and he turns them into mighty, beautiful things, because then he gets the glory for it. The small thing can never brag. Then he said, verse 3, go borrow vessels from everywhere, all of your neighbors, empty vessels. Don't gather just a few. And when you've come in, you shall shut the door behind you and your sons and then pour it into all those vessels and set aside the full ones. So not just an issue of provision, but an incredible look of how God deals with individuals. Right? So God asks her to set aside her unbelief for just a moment. Just don't worry about that. And and again, just like with the ditches, before the miracle shows up, he asks her to go to work. Here's what her work is. He asks her to go. Go out and do things. Go do, give that little bit that you have and turn it around and trust that God's going to do something with it. So also note here that Elisha is helping her, but he's not helping her with food. He's helping her with showing how to give her what God says. Here's what God says to you. Go and do this. And honestly, I think sometimes we, we feel this pressure because we want to help people and love people and care for people. And what we really have to give them is what God says. We have God's word to share with them. And that's not petty or trite. The world might see it that way, but spiritually it's not that way at all. It's actually what people need to get healed is to hear and meditate on God's word. It says to go everywhere. So the further you go, the more you do this, the bigger the blessing's going to be. The more ditches you dig, the better the blessing. The more people that gather to hear Jesus teach, the more people are going to get fed. It's in measurement. It's in an amount that God is doing there. There's two things that aren't determined. (laughs) I'm thinking when you first start to gather empty vessels, you go to your immediate neighbors, right? You go next door. But then when you get all their vessels, you go to the next house further away. Then you gather those vessels, you keep spreading it out. What's not said here is how much time she has to gather the vessels. A lot like with the church. We don't know how long we have left on this earth. Nobody does. We don't know how long we get to get. So what's undetermined here is how much time she has and how many neighbors she gets to. We're never told how many vessels she gathers. So it says your neighbors. We know she goes to them. 
imagine that conversation for a second. She knocks on the door, knock, knock, knock. Hey, widow so-and-so, what's up? I need every empty vessel you have. Why? Wouldn't you? Why do you need it? Because the man of God told me to gather empty vessels. Okay? Here's the other thing. If you've got a house with empty vessels in the ancient world, that means you're out of food too. So she's probably got a lot of neighbors that are struggling. So she goes around. Her sons are helping her gather it. They're almost unmentioned, but notice she's not doing this by herself. She's actually doing this with her family. And she's got a family of people that are out gathering vessels. The neighbors then are asking why, but they also know that she's broke and poor. So when she pays off all her debts, the next question is the neighbor knocking on her door and going, how did you pay off the debts and can I get my vessel back? And her answer would likely be, no, it's full of oil, like I've used it. So the empty vessels are there, interesting conversations, but in this command of God, it's, he could have just fed her. He could have made this oil just appear in the house. Here's all the oil you need. But he doesn't. He employs them to be part of the ministry of doing this so the miracle is shared and appreciated. But it's this quiet miracle. They don't even notice what's going on. And think of all the work they had to do in order to even see the miracle. But they have to obey God. Don't just gather a few. It's an emphatic there. It gets mentioned multiple times. Don't think of how hungry and poor you are. Think of the job God's given you to do. The, what God's asking her to do is switch her focus. Don't focus on yourself. Focus on the work that God's put in front of you. That's so hard to do. Like, it's really easy when the Bible just slaps that out there. But you all know, this is tough to do. It's tough to stop thinking of yourself and how hungry you are. So you're in need, and God focuses her attention on the work, and God wouldn't have us just do a bare minimum. What God wants is for us to do all that we can don't just gather a few. Like, I'm going to do something really neat for you, trust me, but you have to do as much as you can to get there. So you'll shut the door behind you and your sons. This get mentioned a couple times too. Why shut the door? Why does there have to be a clunk that's here? And if you think about it, she's just like word is spreading around town that widow so-and-so is gathering empty vessels. Like, what is she doing? She's lost her marbles. She's nuts. But she's gathering these empty vessels. And when they shut the door, I think that's because the blessing God's going to give, they don't get to see that happen. They're going to see the effect of the blessing, but the door gets shut. There's a point at which, okay, this is the determined time. And I honestly think that there's this idea that you're going to go out and do all this work, and then the door gets shut like there's a time for harvest. And when that time comes, we don't know when that time is. We don't know how many vessels we get to gather in a lifetime. But there is a time where the door is shut. We don't get to gather any more vessels. Then pour it all into those vessels. Take all you have and pour it out into these vessels that other people have given you. From a a dropper flask. Let's think about that for a second. How long does it take to fill a vat if you're pouring out of a limitless little perfume bottle? Like, it might take hours to fill that vat. Think about that. Even if this is a God-blessed vat of endless oil, if I'm pouring it out of a little flasky thing, it's going to take a long time to fill these jars. We're not told how long it takes them to fill them, but it says pour it out into these vessels. It would take an excruciating amount of time to do this ministry. Pour your spirit out, and we're, it, like, it's not even mentioned how long it would take. 
but it would take hours, even if it was like, you know when you do your garden hose and you get the sprayer nozzle and it's, and you try to do that, it feels like there's a lot of water coming out of it, and maybe her flask had like pressure behind it, and it was like, but even if you point that down into a bucket, you still got to stand there to fill your bucket if you're going to wash your car. So I'm thinking, it, A, I'm not arguing that it, this was a power flask or a water soaker flask. I'm thinking it was a normal flask. But the amount of time it takes to do ministry sometimes takes a long, long time. And the amount you have to pour into a particular vessel before it's full might take years of discipleship and time. But you take that spirit God's given you and you just give it to other people. God bless you. God encourage you. I'll be there when you're feeling down. We can go out and hang out when you're feeling up. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon says this, a full Christ is for empty sinners and for empty, ves- empty sinners only. The vessels had to be clean and they had to be empty for this to work. If people are coming in and there's half a vessel full of grain, you don't pour a bunch of oil on it. You ruin both, the grain and the oil. When God asks for people to come to him, he he asks them to repent and say, everything in my old life I'm willing to throw away. I want to be an empty vessel for you to fill me up. Let me be be clay in the hands of the potter and just shape and mold me any way you want, Lord. In other words, we don't take anything with us when we come to the Lord. Spiritually, this is our charge too. And I want to connect this back to the New Testament. It's great images. We're going to get this in the next five chapters. 1 Thessalonians 5, listen to this. Now we exhort you, brethren. This is plural. There's a family here. Warn those who are unruly. Comfort the faint-hearted. Uphold the weak. Be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone. But always pursue what's good for both yourselves and for all. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Go get empty vessels. Don't quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things, including when I say that Elijah is the only one that got taken up. You test all things. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful and also will do it. God is coming for you. Get ready. I pray that every one of us in our life has somebody who's slowly and quietly dumping the Holy Spirit into our life. But the same should happen for you to others. Take whatever little bit you've got and start putting it into somebody else's life. What an awesome world it would be. Same as the ditches in the last chapter. The more vessels she gathers, the more blessing is going to show up. The more ditches they dig, the more blessing that's going up. The more people you pour life into, the more blessing you're going to get. How much do you want? Whatever spirit God's blessed you with, find other people, gather them together, and measure it out as God measures it back. If our prayers are little, our blessings are little. If we consecrate little teeny things in our life to God, we'll get little teeny blessings from God. God's blessing is an invitation to work harder. It's not an excuse to be passive, ever. Mark 4, 24. And he said to them, Take heed to what you hear, and with the same measure you will use it, and it will be measured to you. And to you who hear, more will be given. Take what you hear and share it. 
Set aside the full ones, Elisha says to her. Spiritually, we focus on those in need. I think this is tough in the church sometimes. You get people that get mature in the faith and they're blessed and they're just overpouring and they're blessing other people. Like, okay, then it's time to take and start pouring into the next person because they're ready to start pouring into other people's lives. And sometimes that's, that can be a tough transition from not being discipled as much anymore and having to do the discipling. But it's awesome. It's a great transition when you embrace it. Notice also that her sons are helping her in this. She forgot to mention she had two sons, but they seem to be helping her gather these vessels. The empty vessels then are this sign of people that need things. She had options. I want to point this out too. And I did this morning with the feeding of the 5,000. The disciples could have just laughed at Jesus and said, you're nuts. And I think Jesus would have still fed the 5,000. But he invites them to be part of the work. What a blessing. She had options. She did not have to go get all those vessels. But she did it on faith. So she gets blessed. She had these options. She could have hardened her heart and said, clearly, Elisha, you don't even know what I need. You're full of garbage. You have no idea what you're talking about. But that isn't recorded. She could have hardened her heart and said, oh, all right, I'll go get... Um, I can't lift all these food vessels, right? She could have said, I'm a widow. I'm just going to put out my back if I'm carrying all these vessels. I'm already hungry. And so she could have complained. She could have listened a little and gathered only the vessels from her household, which would have been kind of selfish. But she could have done that. And so she could have obeyed without fully obeying, right? Or stony ground. She could have listened, but then gone out and gotten into long conversations with her neighbors and started gossiping about other neighbors and wasted her time and got caught up in the thorns of life, commiserating, feeling the pain of others, meeting them where they're at. You know, she's came with a request. I want you to come. I want your empty vessel to come over to my house. I want you to be filled. So she could have just gone and acknowledged their empty vessels and been sad for them um, and never presented the request. Why don't you, why don't you give me your vessel because Elijah told me to bring it over to my house. So she could have done that and asked nothing of the people she met. But she had a clear instruction from God and she had many ways to depart from that. But she didn't. The good news is she went out and did what she was told to do. She heard the word of God and she did something with it. Really simple. The word of God actually heals the spiritual emptiness and then overflows without focusing on the lack that we have. This is a really complex idea. How do you fill your needs without focusing on your needs? And the answer is, we, we give to God what he asks for. So we do the same thing. Let me read it from the New Testament. Matthew 28, 18. Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Amen. Tell everybody what I've told you. Take that little bit of oil you've got and give it to people. It's the same command that we have today. We just get an image of it with Elisha. He tells them to observe all things, right, in Matthew. And he tells the widow, gather as many vessels as you can. Don't do a small amount of them. Gather as, as much as you possibly can gather. And I believe she did. But that's not like, again, if we're supposed to tell people what God's told us, that's not just to tell them our favorite 10 verses. We really are supposed to teach what all the full counsel of God to the people we know.
line upon line. She's told to gather vessels. We're told to be fishers of men. So she pours out her oil, and John the Baptist told people to pour out their lives. And so did Jesus. Verse 5, so she went from him and shut the door, there it is again, behind her and her sons. So she's gathered the vessels, her and her sons, who brought the vessels to her, and she poured it out. So that's where, oh, that's good. She had her sons helping her. So this isn't trivial. Starvation is a major problem, and it is a major problem. Let's not doubt that. But God says the solution is to meditate on his word day and night, to do what he says. Joshua 1.8, The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night that you may observe and do according to all that's written in it. Not some of what's written in it, all of what's written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and you will have good success. I'm just going to, this idea of the word, like this is what we do. Psalm 77, 6, I call to remembrance my song in the night. I will meditate with my heart and my spirit makes diligent search of your word. Psalm 119, 15, I'll meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. That's, this is the oil we got. Psalm 119, 78, let the proud be ashamed for they treated me wrongly with falsehood, but I will meditate on your precepts. Having a bad day, I'm going to meditate on your precepts. Verse 145.5, I'll meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, but I'm hungry. I'm going to choose to meditate on your works and what you're doing. Malachi 3.16, then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and those who meditate on his name. Philippians 4.8, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue and if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. 1 Timothy 4.15, meditate on these things, give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. Her job was to do what God told her to do. And so instead of focusing on her needs, she focuses on the work of God. And her need's going to get met. God doesn't forget about that need. So many people say, yeah, but I don't have time. Or yeah, but that doesn't make sense. Yeah, I don't get it. I don't see the immediate benefit to me in doing those things. Whatever the yeah, but is, it isn't what God's looking for. He's looking for a yes, let's do it. You have a choice just like this widow had a choice. You can choose to do what God says to do, or you can choose to reject what God says to do. And God's burden isn't that heavy. It's pretty light. Take his word and share it. It's not a big deal. This widow is hungry, and Elijah's command to go gather empty vessels, don't keep looking around your house for food. Go out of your house and do something. If you're broke, you're spiritually bankrupt, you're in debt, you've got a debt that you can't pay, go gather these vessels and start pouring that oil into the vessels. Take what you know about God, look for others that are empty and hungry, and pour everything you can into those people. So she poured it out. It's better to give than receive. She takes the last thing she thinks she has, she pours it into other people's vessels. Actually, by verse 4, she doesn't even know that this is going to work. She's just doing all this on faith. She does it on faith that Elisha is actually speaking on behalf of God. So she works with her sons. Some bring it, some pour it. There's different roles in the family. 
She's doing one thing. Her sons are doing another thing. They're out gathering. She's outpouring spirit into people. In other words, in this body of believers, this family of believers, they have different roles. It's clearly outlined in the New Testament. There are many members, but one body, one family. There's not, there's, she's not the only one here that has a debt she can't pay. Her sons have a debt that they can't pay too. People with these empty vessels probably have some things they can't take care of because they got empty vessels. She's going to see the hardship of every one of her neighbors that have empty vessels as she does this ministry, as she does this service to God. She's going to see the need of others is also hurting. What we do in our faith, what we do for God, becomes a really important part of our faith itself. James says faith without works is dead. And the widow would say faith without works would leave her hungry in the end. It doesn't work. But faith with works, when God, you do what God tells you to do, then it works. If Jesus lives, then he will keep his promises. He is big enough to do that. Faith has to guide us to action, not the appearance of holiness, but an actual effort to do the things God wants. So they shut the door behind. There's an emphasis on this detail. It's not an incidental thing. I don't think God puts words, words in his in his Bible that are accidental words. This is an important concept that she shuts the door. This is a personal blessing he's going to pour out in her life and in the lives of her sons. Others will see the effect. They're going to see the mechanics of it, if that's even possible. So I imagine that moment with a room full of empty vessels, and she takes her little vial and goes, all right, and she starts pouring the vial, and it just keeps dripping. You know, and this thing of like, oh my goodness, this thing's not going to run out of oil. Like, at what point did she realize a miracle was happening? No? Two minutes of dripping? An hour of dripping? Is Elisha still in the room just smiling in the corner going, I told you. Elijah's not doing it for her. He could have gone out and helped her gather vessels, but he didn't do that. Because he's just the mouthpiece of God. He wants her to see her role in this, her partnership with God. She's never going to forget this moment for the rest of her life. She'll be this 80-year-old widow lady going, I remember this thing with the oil, and she's going to tell everybody she knows about this. The shutting of the door prevents the neighbors from seeing or coming in. They're going to see the effect because she's going to pay off her debts. They're going to see the joy. They're going to hear the story. But the, the miracle itself is intimate. The water with the trenches was so public and it got totally ignored. But this one's intimate. And it's going to have a total impact. And I think God likes this idea. God blesses the individual household. He will not bless the king of northern Israel but he will bless this widow. They pour out the vessels later, <laughs> and they're going to see this process was unseen, but clearly miraculous. Verse 6, and we'll wrap up with verse 6 tonight. Now it came to pass when the vessels were full. When it came to pass, this time passed. Like, we don't know. This could be weeks of drip, drip. Like, you'd think her arm would get sore after a while. But the longer she's doing it, it came to pass, all the vessels were full. And she said to her son, bring me another vessel. You get the sense of an assembly line. Okay, bring another one. Bring another one. I need another vessel. And he said to her, there's not another vessel. So the oil ceased. It was measured out perfectly to the drop. And all of a sudden, boop, 
that last vessel's full, and now there's nothing else in the little flask. Time isn't defined, the method isn't defined, but the miracle is defined. God has done a work, and the oil ceases. The provision continues until there's no longer a need. The church works the same way. The provision of God keeps coming until everybody's full. So keep bringing in the vessels. As long as we bring needs to God, God has oil for that. And he'll shower his Holy Spirit. John 4, 14, whoever drinks the water that I shall give will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become a fountain of water springing up to everlasting life. Man, if the woman at the well even knew who she was talking to, she would know that he's not talking about water from the well. We're not just talking about oil filling vessels here. We're talking about the nature of God and how he works with his people. So we need to stop bringing needs and start bringing people with needs. God wants to show more glory to his people. We drink, he supplies. We bring our loaves and fishes, he multiplies. We bring the ditches, he fills them up. We dig the ditches, he fills them up. We bring the smallest amount of ointment oil, and he fills vats and vats of overflowing oil. This is the smallest thing that God picks. He picks the smallest tribe in Benjamin to raise up King Saul. He picks the smallest son in David, shepherd boy, to raise up King David. He takes the hearted worker of Jeroboam, and even though Jeroboam sins and screws up, God took a hard worker and turned him into a king. God takes the smallest of seeds and turns it into a mustard tree with branches spreading all over the world. He takes the smallest of donations that you have and he turns it into grace and love and peace for other people. He likes this formula and he keeps doing it. Then she came and told the man of God, verse 7, he said, go sell the oil and pay your debt and you and your sons will live on the rest. This comes back to the whole point of it, right? Like she had a debt she couldn't pay and the man of God, the, the word of God says to do these things and now she has not only enough to pay her debt but enough to live on. So I think this is like what an image of salvation, right? We go to God and say, God, we got nothing but we'll give you our life and he not only says, I'll pay your debt and he pays it on the cross but I'm also going to give you enough to live on. I'm going to bless your life even though you thought it wasn't, you thought you had nothing but I'm going to show that you actually have more than enough. I'm going to give you everything you need to live your life. And he's talking about your heart. He's not talking about the new Lamborghini, right? He's talking about a spiritual blessing so you can endure through life and, and actually live it with a life of joy overflowing, even though at the beginning of this story, she had nothing to pay her debts. Now she has more than enough to pay her debts. And this is when all the neighbors start noticing, right? She returns the vessel, and it's got a little bit of oil around the lining of it. Thanks for letting me use your vessel. And it's like, well, suddenly she's good to go, and she's got more than enough to live on. And it's like God had a retirement plan for her, but she had to start that story by going to God and asking the man of God, I have need. And I think that's tough for some of us, the people with pride. Like, you know, It's tough to go to God and say, God, I can't do this on my own. I need you. That's a moment for a lot of us. And God waits for that moment to say, okay, now I'm ready to start pouring that Holy Spirit into your life. And it's a good thing. So she had enough to pay her debts. If there's spiritual widows in the room, let's take what you have and give it to the Lord. 
and let's sow that oil and let's turn it into something. Watch what you have, that little bit that you do have. Watch God take that and use it. You don't have to wait for more. Get to work now. If you're in this room, I mean, you're here to hear the word of God. You've got some element of the Holy Spirit working in your life. Use it. And to the degree to which you use it, God will measure out to you blessing. One has to think at the end of this, what if she gathered one more vessel? Would there have been one more vessel of oil? What if he'd brought one more person into his mom? And the son's thinking that. The neighbors are thinking, oh, shoot, I had three more vessels in the back. We could have gotten way more out of this situation. I think at the end of time, it says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It doesn't say who's going to do it. I think the sinners will be weeping and gnashing because they know they've got judgment coming. I think us saints are going to have weeping and gnashing of teeth because we think, man, what I missed one more opportunity. What if I had taken that opportunity and given it to the Lord? I don't want to miss another opportunity. I'm too dang old for that. And you young folks in the room, think of the blessing that can be measured out to you if you don't miss another opportunity starting today. Friends, don't let that door close before you've gotten every vessel possible, before you've done everything you can do. Follow the command of verse 3. Don't just gather a few. Gather a ton. And let your life be blessed by it. What an awesome thing. And what a good thing. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word. We know there's no accidents that you put these things in here as a prescription for our heart. Lord, you're a great healer and you know where everyone in this room is coming from. You know what's going through their heads. Your Holy Spirit's working on our hearts. Lord, turn our hearts into fertile soil ready to take the seed of your word and measure it out to other people. Lord, help us to just share what we have out of the joy of our heart, not out of some weird argument thing, but out of just a love for others and an enthusiasm for an almighty God. Lord, we know you're still at work. We know we got kings that are falling away from the service of you, um, but we also know that your work doesn't stop and that you continue to pour out blessings even on individuals. Lord, you've gathered your saints. You've called us as a holy priesthood. You've anointed us with the Holy Spirit, and you've called us to go out into all the world and share with all nations. Lord, you've called us to go home to our families and love them and bless them and be a blessing to them. And you've asked us to turn the other cheek. You've asked us to give up our lives, to lose our lives so that we can gain it back. Just like you asked this widow to give up that last bit that she had, Lord, so that you could show your blessing. Lord, help us to be empty vessels. Help us to not have anything else that distracts us from your kingdom. We work, we serve you. And Lord, we just pray that you bless our hearts with your Holy Spirit. As each person in this room takes steps to give you that little bit they have, Lord, I pray you manifest yourself in mighty ways. Bless their lives. Lord, help them to see the difference in their life as time goes by, even if that takes hours and days to drip out that spirit into the vat. Help them to notice that it's filling and to see what you can do, even though it's imperceptible physically. Lord, help them to recognize that they're different people the more they embrace your word and hear it and, and tell it to others. Lord, and I just pray that blessing for each person in this room. Help us to take our own concerns and set them aside long enough to do what you've commanded us. In Jesus' name, amen.
If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.